Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And my name is Christian Sager. Hey, something that people probably don't know about both of us is that outside of doing this show, we're both quote-unquote creative people. Yeah. Right? Like, uh, oh, even in the show. Yeah, well, think, in the show, yeah. we try to be creative you can't, as well. You can't strip the creativity <laughs> off of uh, cats like us. This is very true. But uh, um, you are a fiction writer, which I always try to mention on the episodes that you're not on so that you're not like uh, somehow embarrassed or anything <laughs> like that. But I try to plug Robert's books. Uh, and then I do comics. And, and in the past, I've done uh, music as well. And, I didn't know that. Uh, yeah, in fact, oh, you were you like in a band. You were in a band, right? Yeah, and I had a a, a period of time that I'm going to talk about in this episode where I dabbled with electronic music as well. Oh, okay. Um, but yeah, so but I was in a band for a couple of years, and uh, there's this interesting thing going on right now that you saw when you went to the World Science Festival two weeks ago that is sort of like trying to come to grips with what happens when you teach artificial intelligence or really i guess the correct term is machine learning yeah to uh be creative quote unquote and like how do people feel about that and you saw this amazing panel where they had people who were dabbling in that both in music and culinary arts and uh drawing and then they had this psychologist on the panel too who was like the skeptic kind of yeah, yeah, this was a really good uh, good panel. Uh, I saw it live at the World Science Festival this year, and if you're listening to this, you can watch it as well, because this one, not all the talks are available on video, but this one is available on video, and I'll include a link to that talk on the landing page for this episode at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. But it was titled Computational Creativity. It was moderated by WNYC's John Schaefer, and uh, the panelists included artist Songwin Shung, uh, computer scientist and musician Jesse Engel, neuroscientist Peter Ulrich Say, and engineering theorist Alav Varshney. Yeah, and so th- the four of them had this interesting discussion, kind of a back and forth about what what they were experimenting with in terms of trying to teach machines to be creative, and then more along the lines of defining creativity, uh, systematizing creativity for human beings so that you could somehow try to take that and apply it to machines and algorithms. Yeah. Uh, and that, the, that's where Peter Ulrich say was sort of like the, the neuroscientist, not naysayer really, but just like he was doubtful, right? Because he was, he, he could not see a way that quote unquote creativity as he understood it could be replicated, uh, in machines the way that the, the other three were pretty excited about. Yeah, he, I, I guess if you were thinking of this as a, like a jam band or something, <laughs> right. uh, he was the guy doing the jazzy solos. Yeah. Like all, all the other three had, had really particular, um, examples tied into their research. And then Say would come in and he'd just kind of, he'd wail a little bit. Yeah. He had very interesting stuff to add oh, to yeah, it. Oh, yeah, yeah. He was great. Um, and it definitely brought some balance to it. So we thought after you'd seen it, you said, you got to check this out. I watched the video, took notes. And we thought this is worth us having a conversation here on the show about it, especially because, uh, we're sort of at the intersectionality of science and creativity. Yeah. So w- what we're not going to do here today, we're not going to just replicate their discussion. Right. We're going to, we're going to spring off of their discussion, uh, talk about our own experiences, own thoughts, and we're going to drag in a few additional resources as well and, and some additional examples, uh, to, to bring this conversation to you and then hopefully hear back from all of you uh, creative people, uh, 
about your thoughts uh, on machine creativity, machine learning, and and the future of human creativity. So along those lines, Robert, like when you hear the idea of a machine being creative, how does that make you feel as a person who like, you know, I I, I imagine you're like me, like it's work, you know, mm-hmm. being creative, writing, drawing, playing music. It, you know, there's there's something that feels uh, unescapably human about it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I hear I hear about it and I and I read you know, articles or studies where they've taken a, a computer program and it's writing haikus or it's or it's printing paintings, that sort of thing. I see that and then I I think about these stories of say journalism jobs, like local journalism jobs jobs being outsourced uh to another country. Yeah. I hear about uh of course um, the, the impact on manufacturing of, of, of the the impact of uh, automation on manufacturing. And that makes me, you know, try and envision this future or or where suddenly you're going to have programs and machines that can replicate what I do. Yeah, we've actually exactly to that point. We've actually like encountered that in this business mm-hmm. where like people will occasionally come to us and say like, hey, you want to make your job easier podcasting? We've come up with this program that will do all the research for you. And all you have to do is just like, you know, print it out and go into the studio with it. Oh, wow. Uh, and you know, that seems really interesting to me. That seems I don't think like, I got that email. I, I got the one about where you're basically outsourcing it to other researchers. There's but, that, but uh-huh. then there's also, um, yeah, it'll j- basically just pluck stuff for you and put it into a doc. Uh, this is, has been pitched to me before at least. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing that I've heard about is like, you know, uh, some of our listeners are familiar that we do videos occasionally. Uh, the old stuff to blow your mind videos would be a good example of this. So essentially you punch in parameters of what your video would be about uh-huh. and this software spits out a like video for you that has text on the screen and pulls uh, image clips or video clips out of a library to just make something rather huh. than you working together with a producer, writing a script, all the things that we do when we make those videos. This makes me feel like we need to be marketing our podcast as a craft podcast, right. you know, because right. it's like all yeah. the research is done by hand. Granted, you know, on a computer screen. A lot of people the, don't know this, but <laughs> Mark Marin, all of his research is done by a robot in his garage. Really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> like among the cats, I'm imagining. Yes, cats it's a robot the, the cat, robot, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I kind of feel the same way, especially like when I hear these examples. But then at the same time, like, so I've done commercial art before. I was a mm-hmm. graphic designer for a number of years before I got into the podcasting business. And I've done creative stuff where I've been an illustrator, I've worked as a musician, I've, I write. Uh, and so the thing that I've learned is that like the one of the most important lessons I've learned about creativity is that you have to impose limits upon your canvas, no matter what like mm-hmm. medium you're performing in, right? Or else you're just going to like stare into this abyss forever with like trying to figure out where to place your creative ideas. Um, because there's this infinite possibility of like, what could be right? What could be wrong? Which, which things should I use? Which combination of words? Which kind of ink? All those things. Um, for instance, like writers that I've encountered who have the problem where they'll rewrite the first paragraph that they write over and over and over again and mm-hmm. obsess on making that paragraph perfect before they'll move on. And then they never finish, right? Yeah. But, I've, I've, I've done that before. Like when I first started writing yeah. fiction, I, I was doing that model. And of course the thing I was writing is still to this day incomplete uh, from, from that phase totally. of my yeah. writing life. Yeah. I've been there too. And it's like, that's one of those things that they don't ever really teach you 
at least they didn't teach me very well mm-hmm. uh, in composition class. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, just move on. Um, but when I think about creative machines, then I have to wonder, first of all, are they aware of what their limitations are or are they just executing an algorithm? And how do they do they know how to make those limitations work for them creatively the same way that human beings do? Well, it, it's interesting because, you know, when you when you start picking apart your own creative process, you can you can begin to see how a machine could do some of it, you know, because yeah. you were talking about it, it, imposing limits on yourself. Like I'm instantly thinking like, all right, I'm, I'm writing a, I'm going to write a. I'm going to write this science fiction short story. Okay. Well, what kind of ideas can I explore within the confines of this story, this setting, maybe this type of character that I want to write? Right. And then you start, you start throwing in other parameters, like what kind of stories are, are selling? What, what, what kind of story can I write that doesn't have a vampire in it? You know, stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. and so there's a, there's a certain amount you know, creativity is not necessarily this just magical explosion. Uh, that takes place. There's a lot right. of computation that goes into it, and therefore there's an entire side to it that could easily be mastered by a, an inhuman entity. Right, especially if like we as humans are able to go to that machine and input the parameters of those limits to it, right? Yeah. And say like, okay, here's your limitations, now write this story, or here's your limitations, now create this music. And that seems to be what they're trying to do. Yeah. And I, and I know when, when I think about, you know, these various anxieties about, you know, future writers and podcasters that are entirely machine, uh, you know, we, we all tell ourselves, well, they can replicate a lot of it, but there, there's a certain spark. There's something I have that cannot be replicated. Yeah. And we, we also tell this, the same thing we tell ourselves when we're talking about human competition. You can say, all right, well, this, this individual may be better at, uh, at this, uh, skill set than me. They may have a better voice or what have you. But uh, but there's something special about me. And so to what right. extent or is that just sort of a, a, a self-inflating uh, fiction that we're telling ourselves all the time anyway? Uh, and, and so maybe the, the machines will just swoop in and, and take all of our creative jobs. Maybe, although I have to say, like sitting down and listening to this conversation and then like filling out notes and doing a little extra research for mm-hmm. this episode, it made me think about my creative process in a systematized way that I haven't before. And it made me really realize that, uh, for me at least, I think like one of the, the big like jumping points for human beings being creative is when they start creating new tools to be creative in different ways. And we'll talk about that later because this is something they discuss in the panel as well. Uh, and I can't see a future yet where, uh, AI is doing those things where AI says, hmm, I I like guitar and I can write these songs on guitar, but what if I go over to a tree and I carve an entirely different kind of instrument so that I can get this effect? That's true. That's a, that's a good point. Sort of like meta creativity, I yeah. guess. Yeah. All right. So we'll definitely get into the the tools here in a bit, but uh, before we roll on, I just want to I want to really draw attention to two particular ideas that came up in the discussion uh, that, that I that I thought were particularly striking. And that will come up again and again as we uh, as we uh, roll through the episode. First of all, they they kept bringing up this analogy of the cre- of creative technology compared to the airplane. So obviously, we make airplanes that fly faster and higher than any bird, but that doesn't mean we fully understand how birds fly. Nor does it mean we can replicate the evolved perfection of their powered flight. So technology essentially gives us a version of the same thing that outperforms the organic 
in many respects, but also underperforms in other areas. And this was Ulrich Say's primary argument sort of against the idea that AI could be quote unquote creative, right? Yeah. Because birds, airplanes are not birds, mm-hmm. right? And so he was saying basically that then subsequently, uh, the, the, the software couldn't necessarily be human in its creativity. But right. it depends on how you define creativity, too. Yeah, it's a great metaphor, and I think all the the panelists ended up picking up and playing with it a little yeah. bit, and we'll we'll play with it here as well. Now, uh, Chung, for her part, she highlighted uh, her own projects uh, with creative machine learning, in which she uh, there's some wonderful like um, overhead video uh, examples of this. But she draws uh, with a or, or paints with a pen. I believe it was a pen. It looked to me like she was some using sort of some kind of stylus uh, tablet thing. Okay. But yeah, like basically she, from what I could tell as somebody who does illustration, she was drawing on like the right half of a of a canvas. Mm-hmm. And what she would draw, the computer would then draw on the left half of the canvas, but it wouldn't just imitate her. It wasn't like, I mean, you can do this in like Adobe Illustrator where it just like draws the exact same thing you draw and you've got like a, a perfectly symmetrical drawing. Yeah, right? so it's not a mirror image. No, mm-hmm. it, this was this was like creating its own thing, learning from her curves and lines. Yeah, it was playing off her movement, sort of imp- improvising with her to create a work of collaborative art. And so she argues that the notion of a robotic agent that creates with you, that dreams with you in harmony, is, quote, an underserved narrative in our culture. And I, and I definitely agree with that. She was to me, the most compelling person on the panel. I thought they were all really interesting. There was something about her that I was like, this person's going to go on to do like amazing work and mm-hmm. she's going to come back because she was relatively young. I can see her in like 10, 20 years coming back to us and just like dropping like some huge revelation on us about creativity and uh, uh, computer learning. I have to mean after the, the singularity, uh, yeah, she's going to show up after and be like, I'm she's sorry. uploaded into the, the hive mind. <laughs> they chose me. I'm going to be the go between. Well, she was like, she was dropping some really interesting, uh, tidbits into the conversation. Like she was thinking about, uh, the way that she draws based on competitive gaming. Yeah. Like she kept bringing up like, and by this we mean like, you know, video games where people are playing, I don't know, League of Legends or, um, Overwatch. Mm hmm. And so just the idea that she was thinking about how, like, the AI in those games was compensating for the human movements or or, or play styles as opposed to how she drew and how the computer drew along with her. That's a very interesting connection that I, I would never have thought of before. Yeah, that that's that, that is that's a, that's a really a really great example because you don't think about like this competitive model being yeah. uh, applicable to a, a creative collaboration. And you, you and I play a lot of video games, you know, mm-hmm. but I don't spend a lot of time thinking about how the AI in the game is compensating for my movements. I have the only time I've thought about this, and this is going to be kind of geeky and, and silly, but in playing uh, pro wrestling video games, I've thought about this. Okay. Because... Oh, because there's like certain wrestling styles that the the characters have. Well, it basically comes down to this weirdness. Professional wrestling is a simulated combat sport. What? So yes, yeah, sorry, spoilers, but uh, <laughs> as you see it on TV, it's yeah. two humans pretending, you know, acting out a combat scenario. We actually have a video about this on Kayfabe that you yeah. did a couple of years ago. Yeah. And so when people make a video game of that, they make a fighting game in which two 
uh, like a hu- two humans or a human and an AI or, or two AIs if you're doing a demo mode yeah. are fighting each other in a competitive uh, encounter using the moves of professional wrestling. Yeah. And then on top of that, some players are going to play that video game just like a fighting game. I'm going to beat my opponent. But others will play it attempting to tell a story, attempting to get the most dramatic match. And in those yeah. cases, I don't know that any programmers have really gamed that really strange area of video game playing. Uh-huh. But like, like that's that's what I think of when she brings up this example. Like, here's an example of somebody trying to not only defeat an AI opponent, but to try and tell a story with an AI opponent. Okay, so this is an episode where we're going to have a little bit of more digressions than we normally do because of our creative backgrounds mm-hmm. and sort of uh, things we can bring to this. I have a story that I think can tie into this that we can then maybe bring back to this AI okay. thing. So a friend of mine is currently working on a comic book for a WWE comic. He's just doing like a short story, and it's about some infamous fight between The Undertaker and... Mankind? Is yeah, that the guy's that, that name? That would be, that would be right. Okay. And, uh, th- so I, I never saw this. I'm not as big of a wrestling fan as Robert, but, uh, when he told me about it, I was like, oh, cool. Like you could, you could do some fun stuff like that. Like have them be in a slaughterhouse or have them be <laughs> in a graveyard and they're hitting each other with gravestones or something. Right. And he was like, no, we have to do an exact replica in comic form of this infamous fight they had in like, I don't know, 1999 or 2000 oh, wow. something. And I was like, huh, that's, that's interesting. But to me that like, th- th- here we go with limitations, right? Mm-hmm. Like the limitation there is so limiting that I don't see what would be creative about it or interesting other than obviously my friend and his style and how he draws the thing, but he's not being able to express anything. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I see what you mean. Because it'd be one thing if you'd say, all right, tell this, tell this story, but they actually have magical powers. Like they're really, right. like Undertaker's yeah. really an undead creature. Exactly. That's yeah. how I was thinking it would be. I was mm-hmm. like, oh, that, this is the benefit of doing it in the comics medium is that you can actually give them weird powers and you can like really play with the, the goofy narrative of like their, uh, their roles. Yeah. Right. Um, but, but then it, this, this also leads to the creative challenge. Like if the, yeah. sometimes just because the constraints, are there doesn't mean there's there's not an opportunity. Exactly, and that's what I'm looking forward to it because I when I hear that I go, man, there's there's too many limitations there. But you know who knows? Maybe there's a way within all those limitations. I trust that my friend is going to be able to do this. That that there'll be like a really cool way to depict that fight. All right, but it's going to take creativity, and so we're gonna we're gonna roll it back a little bit and talk about what creativity actually is. Like boiling it down, reconstructing it. Uh, so that we can understand what we're doing when we're creative and in order to uh, make a machine engage in the same process. Right. So they come up with some of their uh, kind of limit limitations on what creativity can or cannot be. Mm-hmm. And this is where I think like ultimately like the split between the four of them or maybe the three of them versus uh, Ulrich Say yeah. uh, came down was that Ulrich Say has this sort of um, broader definition of creativity as being this sort of magical thing that happens in the human brain, right? Yeah, like he talks about, at different times in the discussion, talks about the importance of, of pain, of intent, of consciousness, uh, various attributes that are currently beyond the scope of, of AI and would be problematic if we had them. You know, if you could, would it be... <laughs> Is a whole separate issue, but would it be ethical to make a, um, you know, a depressed artist robot 
because why you <laughs> what kind of cruel god are you to I, make a robot so depressed you know it's funny you mentioned that later on in the notes i have a question on whether robots can be crazy enough to be creative because <laughs> as we know many creative people suffer mental health issues yeah so. well that's how we got uh, David in, uh, oh, in the uh, Covenant movie. Exactly. Yeah. Well, th- they already answered it for us. <laughs> Thanks, Ridley Scott. All right. So one of the one of these sort of loose models, though, for uh, uh, creativity that that is thrown out here is uh, it comes from engineering theorist uh, Lav Varshney, and he breaks it all down to a comp uh, to a, a combination of novelty and high quality that comes together uh, in a way that changes your belief. So like a Venn diagram, I'm imagining yeah. here of, of, is it novel? Is it new? Is it something different? And is it of high enough quality? And when it, and does it come together in a way that actually has some sort of meaning to me? I think this is a really interesting way to model aesthetics mm-hmm. that I had not thought of before. And when you try to like sort of lay this on top of like a creative artifacts and see like how that works, it's interesting, right? Like the first thing I thought of, I was talking to you about this before we went to the studio and no spoilers, but the new Twin Peaks is on TV and uh-huh. I've been watching it every week. And as you would expect from David Lynch, it's wacky, right? <laughs> but in terms of Lav Varshney's Venn diagram here of novelty and high quality, it's just the right amount of novelty and just the right amount of quality that it works for me. Yeah. Now maybe for other people, cause obviously creativity and art is subjective. It doesn't, but but yeah, I was seeing it like, oh, that is the perfect, David Lynch is like the perfect metaphor for this. Cause let's be honest, like some of David Lynch's stuff, the novelty factor can get a little too big in that Venn diagram situation. <laughs> and you're like, and, and Varshney actually describes it as noise. He says like, when either one of those things gets too big in comparison to the other, it turns into noise and we're no longer experiencing something like that's communicative. And he also says that if they both are too, if there's too much of both at the same time, right? Like if it's incredibly novel and it's super high quality, then it's just like that overloads people's circuits, right? So I'm thinking of like Finnegan's Wake, yeah. something like that, probably. Well, and it's going to vary from person to person because, you know, obviously, because you're, I think we can all imagine movies that we've seen where either, yeah. like I've seen plenty of movies where there's some great ideas. The quality's not there, though, you know, right. you, maybe the, the acting is bad, the monster doesn't look right or, or whatever. And then you see the reverse, too, some beautiful films, uh, and you're just like, I'm, my eyes are eating up everything that's on the screen, but I feel nothing. Uh, yeah, exactly. Like, the, you get you get the opposite, too, when, like, these uh, things are too small in comparison to one another, right? Like, if it's super high quality, but it's a story that you've seen and it's been done 300 times before, you're not necessarily going to be that engaged with it, right? Yeah. So there's got to be a little bit of novel something to it. But at the same time, if it's totally novel, it's this cool idea, it's it's like the ultimate uh, Hollywood pitch high concept like the, the ocean walker, hook, right? On, uh, Arrested Development. Yeah, yeah, something like that. And then the quality is just garbage. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, that's not going to do very well either. But, but to his point about like both areas being blown out, both novelty and high quality. Well, uh, I guess, I guess one example would be if you take somebody who does not have much, uh, you know, of a, of a bedrock understanding of, of modern art or surrealism and you just really throw them into the deep end at a modern art museum. Yeah. So they might encounter a piece of work that is, you know, it's highly novel, uh, you know, created with wonderful, you know, high level craftsmanship, but they're just not in a place where they're going to be able to understand it. It's just going to be yeah. essentially over their head. And therefore, like the it's going to be a failure of, of the art in a way. Because exactly. 
you may have created something wonderful and thought provoking, but if it doesn't connect with people, then does it does it work? When he says noise, I immediately think of the image of a television with white noise on it, right? Mm-hmm. So the snow. So that for some people, that's what it's like looking at modern art is just like staring at the screen yeah. while while it's playing, you know, the the staticky snow. But Ulrich Say basically argues that because brains and AI are using completely different processes, that he doesn't even know that you can call what they're doing creativity, right? Because Mm -hmm. he's defining it as being pretty specific to human beings. Uh, And in that human creativity is seen as simple problem solving by generating a lot of possibilities and then selecting from those possibilities. And that's this is how we evolved as human beings, right? So we went from using stone tools to axes to eventually Neanderthals using instruments and actually making cave art, you know, mm-hmm. like that process of evolution through our, our physical evolution also evolved our creativity. And he's wondering like if that topic selection, if that type of problem solving is even possible for computers, but where it really skyrockets. And this is what I think is, is the most fascinating about creativity here is when you start to imagine things that don't really exist and Possibly he was saying that this kind of creativity is due to the fact that we have an evolved prefrontal cortex. And in the video, you get to see like he shows you different um, uh, images of various hominids and their skull shapes and how Mm -hmm. they evolved over time and then creativity evolved with them. And then you see examples where there's cave art with a with like, say, a human with a beast's head. This is something that doesn't actually exist, but is a, uh, you know, arguably an, an example of early creativity. Uh, creating these unreal things that then have various meanings and uh, and an effect on the viewer. And then they like they get to this point in their conversation where they start talking about where the AI quote unquote fails at creativity. And that was interesting to me too because they seem to be talking about how the machines were failing but not how humans could necessarily fail. Yeah, yeah, they they, they were talking about how essentially in all of this you're going to have this machine essentially brainstorming but there's going to be a person that comes along and the person is is then selecting and judging the ideas in the in the case of uh Varshney, he's doing a lot of uh, culinary computation yeah so humans are going to cook the food uh based on the recipe that the uh, computer has come up with and then they're going to taste it and in some cases it's going to be like oh that's a novel combination that actually works i wouldn't think it would in other cases you would say well, they would say all right well let me slow down there uh, machine overlords because this is not right. really all that tasty. So, yeah, you get into this idea where there are are failures, uh, but failures and mistakes are, of course, an important part of the creative process as well for humans. Right. It, it, this is where, like, I step back and I was thinking about my creative process because I was like, look, I know that I spend a good amount of time, quote unquote, failing on Mm -hmm. every project that I work on. I mean, that's just part of being creative is like doing a thing and then realizing that's not what it is, crossing it out, moving on to the next thing, you know. It's basically like what they were talking about before where you're generating all these possibilities and then you're selecting from them. But you have to generate some possibilities that you're not going to use, that you're going to see as failures before you can eventually get to the thing that you see as a success, right? Yeah. I mean, I think anybody out there who has, has engaged in a creative process, you've come up with some, uh, they can't all be zingers, as they say. You're oh, going yeah. to come up with some duds. And for a while, you might think that dud is pretty amazing because maybe it is really novel, uh, <laughs> you know, or maybe it is uh, really high quality, but uh, the balance is is perhaps not there. Right. Yeah. 
Now, there's a there's also the notion of intent in all of this, uh, of feelings, uh, the later of which is, is you know, obviously currently uh, uh, not present in artificial intelligence and machine learning. But perhaps you're, we're just talking about two different sorts of flight to come back to the, the bird airplane scenario. And indeed, uh, moderator uh, John Schaefer points uh, brought up the point of uh, apophenia. So this is a this is this is a, interesting. This is a concept coined by German scientist Klaus Conrad in 1958, and it's the opposite of an epiphany. An epiphany being a you know the you know a true intuition of the world's interconnectedness. Uh, and in statistics, uh, apophenia is essentially a type one error or false positive, where you think something's connected and it's not. Uh, and in psychology, according to Conrad, uh, it's the stuff of schizophrenia. Right. And that's where it's primarily being discussed in present day as like a a psychological problem. It's when unrelated details seem to be saturated with connections and meaning, but they're those are false. They ultimately lead to nowhere. Right. And I've absolutely had this experience with writing before. I'm like, oh, I'm totally on Mm -hmm. the right path. And then like I look back at it a week later. I'm like, that was garbage. You you know? Yeah. And in the like the schizophrenia case, uh, this would be like if you see the same person on the subway twice and you're convinced that yeah. there's someone following you, right. you're making a connection that isn't there, and it might uh, it might take on a, you know a pathological um, uh, energy. What's interesting to me here, though, is that I think this type one error definition of it is sort of connected to the idea of creativity. Yeah. But back to so it's a, it's defined as believing something is real when it isn't. Okay. That could be said to be part of the creative process when you're imagining something that isn't real, at least not yet, mm-hmm. right? Either like, like if you're writing a fantasy story and it's like, okay, uh, my main character has wings and the head of a lion and carries a flaming sword, right? Like, like that doesn't exist. It probably won't ever exist, but that doesn't mean necessarily that it's not creative, right? Uh, but in this sense, it's the actual belief that it's real, right? Like the, if you are like, the, so there's this angel with a lion's head that's following me around everywhere, the flaming yeah. sword, then I can see how that would be schizophrenia. Yeah. So in, yeah, in real life and in statistics, this is a problem, but, but in, yeah, in creativity, uh, as John Schaefer points out, like our brain engages uh, with it. Our brain uses apophenia essentially to forge connections where there, where there isn't one. And a lot of that is where we end up, uh, you know, creating something unique, yeah. you know, like, for instance, the, the whole why does a human have a, have a lion for a head and a flaming sword? You fill in the details and you can reach the point where it's like, oh, well, now it makes sense. Right. I have I have sewn these two things together and now I have this complete form. Yeah. And so when you make those associations in specific ways with uh, different media. Right. So, like, I'm thinking here of album art. Yeah, because you listen to the music that's the, the artifact that the album is is ultimately for. But then there's album art that's created kind of as part of the creative package, but also as marketing. And ultimately, like it gives you there's connections between those two things. Like when you buy them, and it's interesting to me since I moved away from buying physical records and I mainly just get digital music now. Mm-hmm. I realized that I had so many emotional connections with music purely because of the artwork that it came with, because of the packaging that it came with. And I wasn't simply just judging the music on its own merits outside of any kind of visual thing. Well, so here's a quick question on this this idea of, of albums and their album art. Yeah. What's an example 
in your opinion, where the album art and the music like perfectly match? Oh, you know, what's funny is I was actually listening to this record this morning, uh, thinking of you, uh, tools. Is it undertow? Yeah. Yeah. That like weird sculpture that's on the cover of that. Mm-hmm. And then, okay. Surrounding that album coming out, there were like at least three videos that used that similar kind of like gothic claymation style, right? None of those things were the music themselves. But when I hear that music now, for whatever reason in my head, are these like swirling clay sculpture forms. Yeah, I think that's a great example. My example would have been uh, uh, Tools Anima, Anima, uh, actually. They're certainly a band that has always put a lot of thought into how their art and music are coming together. Now, that being said, there are plenty of, of uh, albums out there where the art and the music seem to be on separate planets. And you did a fascinating experiment for this episode. I'm thrilled about this, <laughs> and I can't wait for you to tell the audience because it's interactive. They can go and listen and look at this uh, album art as well. That's right. If, if you think back to our episode on H.R. Giger, mm-hmm. we mentioned how he was generally cool with just about anybody using his art where their album provided they went through official channels. Yeah. And, you know, it was, you know, on the level. So there are a number of different uh, albums out there that have Giger covers and the music doesn't always match up with, or, or I would argue rarely matches up with the, uh, the aesthetic energy that, that, right. that he possessed. Yeah. With Giger, like I assume that it's going to be something that's kind of, kind of industrial or metallic in some way. Right. So, what I did is I went on Spotify, I made a playlist with like one song from every album I could find on Spotify that had a Giger cover. Okay. Like, a, like, or, or in one case came out at, at a, at a certain point with Giger art promoting it. So I then listened to each example and I tried to decide, all right, is this something where the album art makes sense for me? Does it, is there an actual, uh, connection in my mind between Giger and this artist? Yeah. Is there totally not? And can I detect any moments where I feel apophenia kicking in and this creative process in my brain, bringing the two together, finding and forging the connections? So that's what I did. And I, and you can do this too. I'm going to have the, the, the link for this Spotify uh, playlist on the landing page for this episode at stufftoblowyourmind.com. But, uh, yeah, I started listening to these. I listened to Emerson Lake and Palmer's, uh, brain salad surgery, <laughs> which, uh, we were talking about this before. I, I don't know a lot about them, but I just kind of assume it's sort of like a, like a prog post hippie band. It's prog rock for sure. It's, a, it's, it's, many people love them. I think Joe's a, a big fan of it. He least. loves the Tarkus album okay. cover for sure. He talks about that a lot. Yeah. So it's, it's a bit too jazzy for my personal tastes. And so this was an example where I'm like, yeah, I'm just not, I'm not, I'm not feeling this Giger, uh, Emerson Lake and Palmer connection. The same thing with, uh, Debbie Harry's, uh, Cuckoo album. I'm, I'm straining to make that connection. The same with uh, Steve Simon's Electric Playboys and with the, the Dead Kennedys album as well. And I think on the Dead Kennedys one, because that was like so hotly contested with the PRMC, it was only in the interior. They yeah. have like a different cover that's like, I think like Shriners and like little roller cars or something. Yeah. Like that. And then I think on the inside is that notorious, uh, controversial the thing, Giger yeah. thing, yeah. the landscape with um, a lot of, uh, Genitalia and, and orifices. Yeah. Yeah. So those are, so those are examples where I'm like, all right, no connection at all. I don't get this, the connection between the art and the music. But then there's stuff on the other end of the spectrum. So Celtic Frost, for example, 
that's some some early death metal. Very much uh, feels uh, like a Giger soundscape. Mm-hmm. Uh, same thing with uh, Danzig Three. I you know it's gloomy and dark, and you know it has all this this focus on, uh, on you know weird uh, ideas. It works. All right, I totally but totally buy these album covers. But the, the one area, the one example where I, I, I felt things coming together and I had to like kind of I was struggling, but also I could I could feel the connection taking place was with uh, a group called Magma. So they had this album called Attack, A-T-T-A-H-K. I've never heard of them until today. <laughs> and it's and it has like Giger. It's one of these where Giger made the album art with the the name of the band. So it was like a commission. Right. Piece. It looks kind of like his atomic uh, babies. Very design. much so. Yeah. yeah. With, I think there's some. Uh, Close uh, some safety pins in there as well. Okay, so you know, very much a, a Giger piece with Giger's uh, signature symbolism, and uh, and at first I'm like I'm not really feeling this connection, but then I started reading about the band French prog rock. Uh, their album is again very weird. The the dr- the drummer and founder Christian Vander he composed the lyrics in a constructed language called uh, Cobain. And uh, the whole project came together over uh, an ecological, spiritual vision for humanity's future. And so I read about that, and I listened to it a bit more, and I have to say, yeah, I was beginning to to feel the connection between the track uh, No-No and Giger's uh, uh, art. So this makes me think of... So you and I are old enough that we're seeing this resurgence with vinyl and it's like, well, that's stuff that we used to listen on mm-hmm. and then it went away and now it's coming back and it... In a way, it's novel and high quality, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and, uh, but the vinyl resurgence seems to me to be inherently connected to this apophenia and to this like creativity that's going on in the consumer's head, right? And, uh, my friend Charlie actually talks about this because he's a big vinyl fan. He refers to like having the artifact as the material oomph of a thing. Yeah. And I, I just, I stopped collecting records because I was like, I have too much physical space. I can't, I can't carry these around with me anymore for the rest of my life and moved almost entirely to digital. But so many of my friends are really into this new resurgence of vinyl. And I, I understand it, right? Because like, if you're sitting there, like what you just said about magma, you, you look at this record art and then like maybe you look at the liner notes while the album's playing and then maybe you go on Wikipedia or something and you read up on them. It creates this like series of connections that may or may not exist, but add something to the music. Yeah. So with, to bring it back to machine learning and creativity, right? To what extent is it a case of machines throwing together combinations till something begins to catch? Till you have this uh, magma moment, and then the, the randomness touches on possible synchronicity, and then just as our brains try to make sense of it, uh, we engage in the creative process of refining the machine-made connections. So I'll just say this before we take a break, which is that whatever the first album is that's created entirely by AI, mm-hmm. it should have an HR Geeker cover. That's true. And if it's already out there, <laughs> yeah. the first AI album, it needs a new cover by Geeker. As we talked yeah. about in the HR Geeker episode, that house in Switzerland is just full of unused art. So yeah, contact them, commission. Go, go com- knock on that door. Find something and uh, get the rights to it. Yeah. So, okay, let's take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk more about the effects of the actual technology on the act of creativity. All right, we're back. So in all of this, we're talking about machine learning and you know, robotic arms that are drawing, 
uh, computer programs that are taking the various, uh, you know, hierarchies of, uh, of, of values within a particular discipline and then using those to create, uh, quote unquote, art or fiction or, you know, or, or, uh, or a recipe. And in all of these cases, though, it's, it's essential to point out that the technology is working as a tool. Right. And obviously creativity and tools have always co-evolved. So think of any great work of human art and you have to contemplate the tools and the technologies required to create it. The physical tools uh, for carving rock or wood, working and firing p- uh, pottery, the chemical technologies of paints, varnishes and lacquers, the evolution of musical instruments, electrical musical instruments and recording and producing technology, uh, writing technologies from clay tablets to pens to the printing press, the typewriter, word processors and beyond. Yeah. And so in this conversation, the panelists are essentially arguing that A.I., some of them are arguing that the AI would just be a tool for humans to use creatively. It's not mm-hmm. that the AI itself would be creative, but that we would be using it in the same way we use a guitar or a pen or something like that. Yeah, and, and that ultimately it's not going to be any more destructive than you know the effects of the synthesizer uh, or any, yeah. any of these various uh, electronic uh, musical technologies that obviously did not destroy traditional music or or, uh, you or know, cause Judgment Day. Yeah, or cause Judgment Day. <laughs> like they didn't destroy the the artistic traditions that came before. They took the existing traditions in new directions. Sometimes surprising new directions. They they bring up the example of the drum machine. Yeah, where when it came out, you know, it there were people who were figuring out ways to use it where you're creating sounds that, you know, they they didn't match. They they weren't perfectly replicating real world drumming, but they were able to to use them in novel ways that that brought about some some new sounds in hip-hop and electronic music. But then one of the panelists, it was the guy from Google, I'm forgetting his name right now, but he likened AI to a garden. Yes. And he said it's where you're growing things, but you're growing them with intentionality. And that computer systems themselves are not in a state where they can reflect upon that intentionality yet. So does this count as creativity when they're doing it without intentionality? And it really depends on what you're focusing on here. Some of them were focusing on the process of creativity and others were focusing on the artifacts of creativity, right? So a computer program can certainly currently create an artifact, right? Whether it's a recipe, a song, or a, a, a drawing, mm-hmm. right? As we saw examples of all, all three in this panel. Um, but it's not necessarily engaged in the process. And so that seems to be where they were diverging, uh, especially because for the latter, intentionality may not actually be necessary. You can make artifacts without having any intention. Right. And to your point on the, the process, Chung points out that the process is vital to what she does. Like it's really more important than the, the finished artifact. Yeah, exactly. It's, I mean, the painting is one thing, but it's, it's that, that video, uh, as well of her, uh, interacting with this robotic uh, arm that is uh, that is essentially jamming with her. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think this is really interesting because it forces us to systematize our own creativity. Mm-hmm. And ironically, you know, we as human beings like to think that our own internal system, especially when we're being creative, is not computational, right? But maybe it is more than we know. Well, this is always one of those areas where you don't want to fall into the trap of thinking entirely of human cognition in terms of a computer, um, even though technology is always a, a, a handy way to try and uh, and see our own cognitive processes. Yeah. But on the other hand, you don't want to do, you can't dismiss the fact that there are uh, there are aspects of our cognition 
that uh, that are very much in line with the, the functioning of a computer. Right. It's the same thing as a bird is not an airplane. Right. But uh, at the same time, they they are they both very fly similar and they both yeah carry out the same process. Yeah, um, I think though, like the tool building thing is where it really gets interesting to me in determining whether or not computers are creative. Because for creative purposes, when you actually go out and build a new tool, for me, that's a sign that a creator has actually like graduated to this other level of making. Right? I think I referred to it as meta creativity earlier. Like, mm-hmm. They're somehow not satisfied with the available tools that are there. And, and they need to experiment. And in terms of that novelty quality divide, this isn't always successful, obviously, right? And it's especially fascinating when a creator balances the novelty of that experiment with actual aesthetics and creates like a new tool that other people end up going on to use. You know, we were talking about uh, Burroughs, William Burroughs and uh, Naked Lunch yeah. earlier. I think the cut-up machine is an example. Oh, this, yeah. Where the it, it was a novel approach to take uh, essentially like taking these uh, these these paragraphs and phrases and they're literally cut up and then yeah. recombined and yet when i've when i've read cut up literature it's noise it's mostly noise yeah, yeah. and then sometimes i like it but most of the time i it it, it doesn't quite connect for me and yeah. when i've tried to do it myself i've really not, not liked it so i experimented with it a while ago. Mm-hmm. And what I ended up doing was rather than just like doing cut up method, I guess we should explain what cut up is. So you write something with intentionality mm-hmm. and then you cut out all the words up into separate little pieces of paper. At least this is how Burroughs did it. I think there are programs that will do it for you. Oh, nowadays. yeah, yeah. Um, Websites. And you literally randomly paste them together so they form just uh, ungrammatical, oddly formed sentences and try to see what kind of apophenic connections are formed by these words combined the way they are. Um, the way I was doing it was I would do that and then I would look to see where there were interesting connections and then I would pull those out and put them in my writing <laughs> rather than actually use cut-up method to write anything. Well, and that that comes back around to what uh, what the, the, the panels were talking about here, the idea that, that it is a tool, that, yeah. it, that there's still going to be this, this human at the center of it that's walking in this garden of robotic creativity, of, of machine creativity, and saying, that's a good carrot. I'm going to pick that one. That carrot looks like crap. We're going to leave that. <laughs> that carrot was never meant to be. So this whole thing leads me to ask a question that I don't think they addressed, which is if tool use and making tools is an essential part of creativity, right? Like mm-hmm. somebody had to invent the right kind of crow quill pen to illustrate with, or somebody invented a particular style of guitar with pickups and the the six strings and the exact kind of materials that are used in the body and the neck, right? Mm-hmm. Or narrative style, or even stoves, right? Particular kinds of stoves for cooking. So all of those things are actually part of creativity. Are computers then capable of creating their own tools for the sake of experimenting and being novel? And I think the answer to this would be that we would say, well, that's how they write algorithms, right? The algorithms are their tools. But what about actual artifacts that they're using to make other artifacts? Huh. Yeah, I don't I don't recall any examples of that whether within this discussion or uh, or outside of it. Um, that seems to me like it might be a good place to draw a line of like when AI starts being creative, at least yeah. from my perspective. But then again, I mean, I think of, of great creative minds and, and so many of them use were, prefab tools. Yeah. And they're working yeah. within the, the, 
the confines of their genre between between you know within say literary norms yeah yeah and in many cases well in many cases of course you see someone sort of mastering the norms and then figuring out what new spins to put on it but they're not yeah, really yeah i i would i would ask are they actually creating any new tools though or are they yeah. just using the existing tools in slightly different ways breaking the rules yeah, yeah. i don't know it's it's interesting though i wish we could ask uh, those panelists this question like Cormac mccarthy uses a typewriter i think he uses like an old typewriter is that right to to, to knock out his uh his fiction but he did not create his own like, yeah he didn't build his typewriter yeah one made yeah. out of like uh you know uh bull skulls and uh children's skeletons <laughs> this is kind of what i'm getting at yeah is exactly like oh but but you could argue maybe that cormac mccarthy had created a certain kind of uh prose style right yeah. that is unique to him um or I, and I don't, I haven't read enough McCarthy, so, uh, I might be totally off here, but like maybe he's like fiddled with narrative, uh, rules in such a way that it's novel. True. Yeah. I mean, you can also look, go back to Giger and we've talked yeah. about how he was using the airbrush. He did not invent, he didn't a new invent airbrush, the airbrush, yeah. but he was using the airbrush in ways that, uh, or, well, I, I, I don't want to speak to method too much because I don't really know much about the, the methodology of airbrush art. But uh, he was doing things with it that no one else had done. Before. From what I could tell from when we did that H.R. Giger episode, he was using ink and paint that hadn't been used in airbrushes okay. before. Yeah. All so right. I think that might be part of that it. Would, that would, yeah, I think that would support the idea of, of using a new tool. I mean, if you're changing the tool, yeah. you are creating a new tool. That's that's something they touched on in the in the, the panel discussion at World Science Festival is that one of the things about human tools is that they have evolved and we have evolved with them. Our yeah. brain, our culture, our language, this has all uh, been part of the same journey out of, uh, out of the stone age, out of the pre stone age. As we, as we, we adapt these tools, we figure out new ways to communicate the construction of these tools and then create increasingly uh, complex um, bits of pieces of art, technologies, etc. Uh, with those tools. Yeah. So then getting back to limits, right, which is something I brought up really before even we got into these panels, is that, okay, AI can use the tools and it can learn the composition traits of an art and it can learn those rules. Mm -hmm. What we're questioning is whether or not it can learn how to break those rules. But uh, when they're using a tool, they have to kind of figure out the same constraints on the system that humans do. And so I'm wondering... If these patterns are based on, quote unquote, how the world works as we humans see it, then that's human culture. And the we're just teaching uh, the computers the sort of like mathematics of human culture. Yeah. And then having them replicate that rather than the, the machines looking at the world and kind of coming up with their own cultural interpretation of it. Maybe I'm leaning more towards Ulrich uh, say than I thought I would. <laughs> All right, well, let's take another uh, quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk about what it means for the future and uh, and also some more comparisons between the creative process and uh, machine learning and airplanes. All right, we're back. So you were really taken with Chung, as I was, I think. Like, she she just stood out. I mean, everybody on the panel was interesting, but... Chung just was really fascinating in the way she talked about her process and then when you watched her actual process. Yeah, the second she said uh, that bit about like the narrative of machines and humans cooperating, I, I totally agreed with it because it lines up with uh, a lot of what I've been thinking about with science fiction is that we 
we continually see the dystopian vision of uh, robot overlords and right. uh, and evil robots, evil androids, and I love all that stuff. Don't get me wrong, but when I read Ian M. Banks and his view of the the culture, uh, this post uh, scarcity, far future, uh, utopian society, living with computers, uh, li- li- basically having this sort of hybrid uh, cultural scenario with super intelligent machines. Like it makes me think, what well, we should have more of that. We should have more of this this side of the argument yeah. for a post singularity world, and and the you know, and and not to say that we shouldn't be concerned about the potential dire consequences. I mean, obviously, we if to whatever extent it's practical, we should try to avoid uh, uh, Terminator scenarios. <laughs> but but there's this whole other side. There's this whole there's this view of the the machine as a tool. This machine is a a collaborative. Uh, uh, process. And I think that's, that's very important to keep in mind. Yeah. And I totally admire their intention, but I wonder if there is a point where it's really down to like sort of what our linguistic definitions are here. Mm-hmm. I think there might be a little bit of confusing collaboration for tool building. Like, okay. is the machine actually collaborating with Chung or was she building a new tool that she could use to create new art with? Yeah. Cause you could argue that in the same way that a French horn, you, you you buzz your air into one end, and the technology of the horn allows a different sound to come out. Yeah. So you could say that that's what she's doing here. She's essentially blowing into a horn, and we're appreciating the uh, the duality of her organic sound right. and the manufactured sound of the horn. Right. It's like she's developed a new instrument, and she's learning how to play it. Yeah. And I think that's a valid read on what's going on as well. Now, in all of this, uh, Jesse Engel, uh, the computer scientist musician, uh, he, he, he spoke a bit about the Google Magenta, uh, project that he's involved with. And he pointed out that with Magenta, there's always a human in the process. Yeah, because again, the human is a tool. This is the gardener walking, uh, you know, amid the, uh, uh, the creative uh, machines in the garden. Right. This isn't soil and green. It's not like right. Google is made of people. Right. <laughs> I, but I found this particularly interesting because it closely mirrors the inner workings of military drones. So a few years back, I spoke with uh, this guy, Noel Sharkley, who's a professor of uh, artificial intelligence and robotics at the University of Sheffield. And, uh, and, and he, he had some, some interesting revelations about the, the necessary human components of UAVs, of, of unmanned aerial vehicles. Okay. He said, uh, quote, these are all man in the loop systems, which means essentially there's someone, uh, someone controls the applications of lethal force. They're not exactly remote control. They're sort of a hybrid. They have a certain, they have certain autonomous functions, meaning they can be programmed to react to their, to their GPS so they can go about on their own. They can navigate themselves, though a pilot will control their height and that sort of thing. It's the first step towards full autonomy. The most recent U.S. Air Force documents describe a swarm of planes. The term swarm is kind of a technical term in robotics, meaning a bunch of robots that interact with one another on a local basis. The man on the loop would be in in executive control of the swarm. So rather than having at least two pilots in charge of a predator drone, in his example, you'll have one person in charge of a swarm of robots. Mm. So human technology can be used to kill people or create art as well. Uh, yeah, yeah. This is interesting, especially in lieu of uh, the other uh, episode that we're working on right now, which is it's going to come out after this one. But it's about violence and the capacity for human violence and drones in general, I think, are interesting in that respect because 
they allow us to create violence from a distance. Yeah. And there is sort of an apophenic, I don't know what the right (laughs) application of apophenia is there, but there's something going on there with that, right? That allows that disconnection. Yeah. So in the case of the drones, it's, you know, very much a person, uh, you know, checking in and, uh, and fine tuning everything. And in the case of, uh, say, Chung's example of working with a, with a, with a machine collaborator, you have a similar case. So it's, it's like a feedback loop process. The machine creates something. The human adds their spin. Then the machine adds a spin on that. And the, the human adds a, 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 an additional spin and, and weeds out what's not working and, and maybe adds some flourishes that, that tweak it for human consumption. And this is again what Jesse Ingle compared to tending a garden. Right. Yeah. You know, and this also reminded me of uh, of another conversation I had, and this was back in 2011. I uh, spoke with Atlanta area electronic musician Richard Devine, uh, who's a really cool guy. I'll include the the link to the full uh, interview on the landing page for this episode. But uh, he said there were at the time, again, 2011. He said there were more electronic music tools uh, on the market that didn't exist when he was starting out, and it was uh, at the point where anyone could really create something and put it out on SoundCloud. And he told me, uh, quote, there are so many people trying to emulate specific styles, so now you have hundreds and hundreds of people trying to sound a particular way. I find that there is less and less innovation in music, uh, but more and more people creating it. Okay. And he also talked about the use of algorithmic music composition, uh, something that's been around for years. Uh, Brian Eno has uh, engaged uh, with it. Uh, Autecker, mm-hmm. uh, the, uh, the the famous IDM group, they've they've used it. Various uh, artists. Uh, this is essentially where you you have you have a, a program. You essentially have a, an algorithm for creative output, and you tend it like the garden that yeah. it is, and uh, and see what it creates. But so, in those cases, right? At least with Eno and Autecker, they're creating the software themselves, right? Or yeah. with a team of people? I believe so, yes. Okay. So uh, I asked I asked uh, Divine about this, and he said, it's really interesting because you're defining the rules and parameters of that environment, and then you can decide how that environment behaves. Right. But then he uh, he closed with the following about the limits of your tools. And this is, this is key because this gets into what we're talking about, imposing limits. He yeah. said, I don't necessarily think that always helps creatively or makes people more creative. I think it sometimes makes people lazy. When I have too many resources at my fingertips, I have a tendency to get really lazy with the creativity. So for me, I try to limit myself with how many tools I use. I try to, to keep it to just a couple of pieces of equipment and learn those pieces of equipment really, really well. Yeah, this is gets back to sort of what I was talking about earlier about like self-imposed limitations. Yeah. yeah. Um, so this is actually interesting to me because as I brought up earlier, I did have a little foray in the early 2000s where I locked myself in my bedroom and made electronic music over a winter. Yeah. Um, and the way I did it was with this, this video game for PlayStation. This is, this shows you how far back it's going. It's the original PlayStation. Uh huh. It was called the MTV Music Generator. Have you ever heard of this? No. Yeah. It's branded MTV. Uh, and basically it was like the, the most basic way that you could create your own electronic music. It had like pre-built in beats and pre-built in like melodies and things like that. Uh-huh. And you could add layers of effects and things like that on top of it. But what I thought was really cool 
was you could take CDs at the time because the MP3s were just <laughs> just getting off the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could put them in and you could rip segments off from your CDs and then insert those sound files into these compositions that you'd created using MTV's just prefab generator. And so I wrote like five songs, I think, and uh-huh. like put them all up online. Uh, they're, I don't know. Maybe if the audience is interested, maybe I'll put them on the landing page for this or yeah. one or two of them. They're silly. I I, <laughs> I wrote under the name Invisible Maniac. And this okay. literally lasted for like three months and then nothing ever came of it. But uh the thing about it, though, was that that was all I did with the electronic music, right? I never went beyond my CD collection, the PlayStation, and this video game that allowed me to do all these things. But... uh the the very idea of doing something like Autiker or uh, uh, Brian Eno, going out and writing my own software or going out and recording my own drum beats or other sounds to work with was like way past the point of my creative interest with electronic music, right? But I take something like writing or, or comics, the stuff that I work in now, and I spend a lot of time thinking about the tools that are available and the ways I can use them to tell stories differently. I think this all comes back to the systemization of art, right? So you're, you're, when you start getting to a point with the art form where you're, you're so interested in it and you want to take it a step further that you start figuring out like, okay, well, how does the actual form work? How does it tick? And then how can I take that and apply it in new ways? That's, that's something really interesting to me. I mean, like, for instance, like when I played in bands, I never built my own guitars. I never built my own pedals. I have friends who do that though. Like they have, you know, little electronics backgrounds and they build their own pedals and make music that nobody else has ever made before. And I feel like there's a distinction between us there. Like they feel, it feels to me like they're more masters of their craft than I am. They go out and they build something new or likewise, uh, for, for instance, like in graphic design, I have friends who are graphic designers. They'll go and write algorithms for Adobe software to help them make graphic design in ways that they haven't been able to before. What's interesting from what we're talking about here is that it seems like in music, certainly, and then also in uh, in, in the use of, uh, of, of Adobe Photoshop and digital uh, um, digital art creation tools, like they're many steps ahead of of the literary model. Yeah, so, right. So we can try the to... The typewriter Im- analogy from earlier isn't exactly... <laughs> right, it doesn't exactly work the same way, tool-wise. Now, now granted, we have word, fabulous word processing uh, uh, options out there. Yeah. We have, we have spell check and grammar checks and all, you know, the, of course, the what Clippy uh, popping up and giving <laughs> us tips. Yeah. But imagine, if, you know, easily, easily imagine, I can easily imagine reaching the point where Clippy pops up and says... Hey, I see you're writing a short story in the style of Clark Ashton Smith. Would you like to tweak it in this direction? And I wonder, yeah. I wonder what it would be like to reach that point where you're essentially, you're writing with this machine filter in place. And on, you know, certainly you can be a, a very purist about it and say like, well, that's, that's cheating. If you're, sure, if you're yeah. writing through a machine and something else is coming out on the, on the other side, that's, that's not the authentic, uh, process of writing but on the other hand how is it any different than buzzing into a horn and getting that song on the other end right you know yeah. we don't say ah oh, uh, uh who is the great uh, trumpeter dizzy gillespie yeah that sounds right yeah nobody says ah oh, you if you heard the sound of his, him just buzzing his lips it's awful <laughs> it's all that horn it was just it's clearly it's the technology that's that's who's the it should just be 
Dizzy Gillespie's trumpet credited on the album. Uh, no, nobody's doing that. Like you credit the the lips buzzing into the into the machine. You know what's interesting though is I think of like the media world that that we exist in today, where and you and I hear this all the time: content is king, mm-hmm. and the idea that just like the that the consumption levels for content are so high right now that like almost the human beings creating the content can't keep up. Right. Right. And so there's all these like businesses that are trying to come up with a lot of like quick and easy ways to, to get more content out there. And this seems to me like a way to do that, that might not necessarily be uh, aesthetically displeasing to the audience that's, that's consuming it. And that, yeah. that's whether or not you're reading something in an RSS feed or you're listening to an MP3 file or whatever you're consuming digitally, uh, having machines that can create content for you, I can totally see in like less than 25 years that being a thing. I don't think it will replace us necessarily, but it could absolutely be a way for what's the word? Click farms yeah. for click farms to sort of create more stuff. I tell you another example that comes to mind is uh, I enjoyed I enjoyed reading for a brief time towards the end of his life. Hunter S. Thompson wrote for one of the ESPN websites. Oh yeah, and he was commenting. His sports stuff is interesting. Yeah, yeah, and but in this one he just wrote about whatever. So he's often talking about politics and what have you. Yeah, for someone who wanted Hunter S. Thompson to essentially come back from the grave and comment <laughs> on today's political uh, news, you could conceivably, I, I mean, or I can conceive of a future in which you have the, the Hunter S. Thompson AI yeah, the, and you just drop in the news feeds to it and then it creates commentary in the style of him. Or maybe there's a human in the mix as well. Maybe not. Right. But, uh, I mean, I can see people digging that even though they know that Hunter S. Thompson has been dead for a long time. What I mean, what you just described, if that existed tomorrow, that mm-hmm. would be the news of the week. Other yeah. than like, you know, big current events and things that are going on. But like in terms of like media, everybody would be sharing it and everybody would be like, look what I plugged into Hunter S. Thompson bot and it came out with this. You know, remember that What was the Twitter uh, thing that was created that was like uh, Jonathan Strickland would know this because I think they talked about it on tech stuff. There's like a Twitter bot that was created and the idea was that it would learn how to tweet from reading other people's tweets. And like within like a day or something, it eventually was just like swearing and saying like horrible racist and like mean oh, things. Oh, I remember that. Like, yes. it, like it, it was like super quick that it just devolved into this monster. <laughs> now, uh, along these lines, uh, an example that came up in the talk is uh, this uh, Sony uh, CSL research laboratory project where they use their AI flow machines system to create a new Beatles song. Yeah. So essentially they just loaded in, you know, all the, the parameters of, uh, of the, the Beatles discography. And then they created this song. It wrote this song, Daddy's Car. And then they got humans to perform it, uh, cause we're, you know, we're not at the point where the, the machine can perfectly replicate uh, a recording that would sound like the Beatles. And yeah. this essentially sounds like a Beatles cover band. Yeah. I listened to it and it's very weird. Like the lyrics are written by humans. That's another thing that's important to distinguish. Mm-hmm. But the machine itself decides, you know, what the composition is. And there is something just a little, uh, I don't know, I don't know how to, like, Uncanny Valley in music, which I've never thought of before. When you guys talked about Uncanny Valley in that episode, did it come up in any other sense structure other than vision? Uh, I I do not, I know it didn't come up in in terms of music. So, yeah, I think this is an interesting example because... 
when I listen to it, I definitely feel that uncanny effect. Yeah. But how much of that is me knowing beforehand that this is not a Beatles song? Yeah, right, right. So, yeah. so if it was presented to me as, hey, here's a lost Beatles song, would I dig it? Would I be all in on it? And then the additional question is, will we reach a point where audiences won't care? Yeah. So like I mentioned Tool earlier, I've, I've had to wait for the last three albums to come out, and that's like a 20-something year span there. Uh, but there are new fans who come online, and they're like, all the albums are there, and they can start waiting on the next album with the rest of us. And if, and if fake material comes out, we're not going to accept it. Right. Uh, I mentioned I mentioned Autechre earlier. I believe Autechre is a, is an example where there have been fake leaks that have come out, uh, yeah. where where someone says, "Here's the new Autechre album. Listen to it. It's really some other uh, album that somebody else created," and everyone just you know craps on it. And they're like, "Ah, get this." Get I this could out see of here. that being pretty easily uh, not replicable, but like uh, you could get faked out on that pretty easily given their music style. Exactly. Can you imagine though a point in the future where? The fakery, if you want to call it, or at least the AI, the machine creativity involved, is so advanced that they can come up with something that scratches your itch, uh, that itch for, say, uh, another Tool album or another Mozart composition, what, whatever the, uh, uh, the the need is. Yeah. And maybe on top of that, it even customizes it to your own particular taste within that group, your own uh, real-time emotional demands. What what this all boils down to that I think is really interesting and didn't come up in their conversation at all is um are you familiar with Walter Benjamin or Benjamin it's sometimes pronounced uh, his 1935 essay work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction no I, don't, I am not it's this really interesting take on what the difference is between art and copies of art mm-hmm. and he throws out this term aura in it where he essentially argues that mechanically reproduced art is missing this aesthetic uniqueness that the original has, right? So if you take the Mona Lisa and then you run it over, uh, you you get a like really high definition quality print of it. That's not the Mona Lisa though, right? Like it doesn't have the aesthetic uniqueness there. And so when you apply that here, I'm wondering, is the art of the computer authentic? Then, like, so for instance, they were talking about the recipes that were being created by the, by the computer. If that comes out and it tastes great and you're like, oh, this is really good. Does it have that aesthetic uniqueness of somebody figuring it out or is it a mechanical reproduction? Huh. But this brings to mind, uh, an example that also ties into uh, my trip to New York is I, I kept thinking about Arnold Bachlin's painting, Isle of the Dead. Okay. In part because I'd just seen Alien Covenant and they reference the painting in oh, the film. They? Yeah, there's a scene where it's like one of the, the castles of the engineers and uh, David and Walter standing out there having a conversation. And it's clearly uh, inspired by this painting, the, the Isle of the Dead. Oh, yeah. Coincidentally, yeah. is a painting that Giger um, did versions of and in his own style. Is that right? Well, that must be where they got the idea for it from, I would I would assume. That's very like when you look at it and you've seen mm-hmm. that movie, you can see the influence. Yeah. But it's a it is it's a picture. It's an image with a lot of darkness in it, like, mm-hmm. like literal darkness. And there are some fabulous prints out there of it. And there's some fabulous digital versions of it online. You go on Getty, et cetera. But seeing it, seeing an actual version of it at the the Met in yeah. New York, it was actually a little lackluster because there's this gleam on the the black on the black paint and uh-huh. it's aged a bit. So it was one of these rare cases where seeing the original, it felt unique in many in many cases. Like here's the thing itself. Yeah. But on the other hand, it was less satisfying. 
Wow. So that's like a, a reverse of Walter Benjamin's uh, aura. It's like the aura itself was diminished somehow yeah, over and you, time. And I should add that usually I feel the other way around. Yeah. Usually if I see the, an actual painting that I that I care about, like it's it's amazing to get in there close to it or as close right. as you're allowed and uh, and see the details, see the brushstrokes, see the like the physical paint. Another example would be like the difference between seeing a band live and listening to them yeah. on recording. Um, and this makes me think of synthesis and synthesizers, because in this mm-hmm. talk, they brought up synthesizers as being like an early example, kind of like the drum machine of this uh, computer generated creativity. And synthesis makes me think of Bloom's taxonomy of learning. And within it, synthesis is one of the modes of learning that you're, you're supposed to try to achieve. And it's basically one has to put together parts from diverse elements to form a whole. So the process of synthesis creates a unique form of ideas, communication, operations, relations, and sometimes art. So while machines are currently capable of being synthesizers, right, they're, they have a combination of those elements, but the humans are the ones doing the synthesizing. The machines themselves aren't doing that. So that role still seems to be held by humans in this relationship between us and seems inherent to the creative process to me. Hmm. And they sort of get into this a little bit when they start talking about ownership because they brought up the idea that computational artifacts are actually not owned by anyone. Under current law, they're defined as public domain. So if a company can't patent what comes out of a computer that generates art, what's their incentive to fund further development of AI creativity? So actually, this goes back to what we were saying earlier, right? Like, Mm -hmm. if you were going to, uh, let's say How Stuff Works built an Arnie AI robot that would write all our articles for us, and it was able to write like a 100 articles a day based on like whatever it saw coming up in the news. Technically, How Stuff Works wouldn't own those articles because they'd be in the public domain because they're created by computation. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, it, this brings back them to mind the idea of, of having a human in the loop. And so right. I could see the case where you'd have to have a human in the loop just for, uh, for legal purposes, just so that right. there could be a definite owner because then that, that, that human can have it in their contract. Of course, that anything they create, uh, you know, on the company clock is property of the company. That's pretty standard. Uh, and then I, I assume the machine's contributions to that, the machine would be more of a pure tool in that scenario. Right. But a a self-aware uh, tool, if you will, is just going to be outside of the, the confines of existing law. Yeah, yeah, for now at least. Yeah. So, wow, we've had a pretty extended and a deep discussion about this. I, I knew that this was going to be interesting, but we really dove deep. And one of the things that I, you know, to close out watching the panel, they sort of said, well, why are we asking this now? Why are we asking these questions about machines and creativity? And they said, well, because this was actually, uh, Chung, I think said this. She said, we're currently generating these huge amounts of data, right? Like, just think of, like, our information systems just on the Internet in general, Mm -hmm. all the data that's being generated. And we're trying to wrap our heads around it. So we're using models that we're already familiar with. So in this case, the model of creativity, right? Uh, Again, getting back to systematizing it. And so human culture is being applied on top of technology. Uh, And that that's what's interesting I think is like we've gotten to this point now where we're like, 
oh my God, there's so much information that even like we cannot process it and figure it out. We need to turn to these machines to try to help us do that, but we need to like layer our cultural understanding of the world on top of that. Yeah. So creativity is not, it's not, it goes beyond just merely using these machines to make our art, but using these machines to make sense of, of ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, I guess ultimately that's the point. Yeah. Well, that and like cat videos. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, you know, this is going to be a great one to get some feedback on because I, I know for a fact that we have creators out there who create their art while listening to episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind. So uh, you guys and gals in particular probably have some uh, insightful commentary on uh, on the material discussed here today. Yeah, and we would love to hear from you about that. There are a number of ways that you can get in touch with us. We're all over social media if you want to write us about your creative experiments or your thoughts on computational creativity. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram. And as already mentioned, we are a craft podcast and, uh, and we re- we require your support, uh, for our, uh, for our art. So, uh, we're not asking for money, but we are asking for iTunes reviews. So if you listen to us on iTunes or even if you don't and you just have an iTunes account, why don't you go on there and leave us a, a nice review? Throw us five stars, six stars, seven stars, however many stars they, they let you give us. Uh, just give us the maximum and uh, leave a nice review and that helps us out and helps us to continue to do this show for you. And most of our episodes, as well, all of our episodes, have landing pages on our website, stufftoblowyourmind.com so we always recommend that you go check those out because they have like interesting links to other stuff that we've worked on that's related but this one, as we've discussed in the episode, is going to have all kinds of cool stuff Mm -hmm. including that playlist that Robert put together of all the H.R. Giger (laughs) album cover songs Uh, so check that out for sure and uh, as always you can get in touch with us directly by emailing us at blow the mind at howstuffworks.com for more on this and thousands of other topics visit howstuffworks.com 